Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals, and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. What's up, Devin? How's it going? You threw the question back at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually instinctive for me to say, what's up, or how's it going? Um, I read an article from Chris Orlov about how you've been, which is supposed to be the best opening line, and I think I've just ingrained it in, because now I just say it all the time. Yeah. How you been? How you doing? Yeah. Um, But Gina, I actually have a question for you. What's up? We've been doing a lot of remote work lately. We have. What have you learned in the first few days of remote work? What have I learned? Um, I think... What people end up doing is being over-communicative on Slack, mm-hmm. which is great, but also can be a huge distraction. Yes. So I haven't done this yet, but I think I need to like block specific time to go on Slack. They're going to say specific people. <laughs> <laughs> You're not on the blacklist. So uh, like good. maybe like check in in the morning and at lunch and in the evening. I don't know. I don't know what people's expectations are of Slack. Like you have to respond right away or not, but that's too much for me. I am with you. I've wondered myself. I was like, well, I mean, it's not like they texted me. I'm like, do I really expect people to text me for urgent things? Mm-hmm. Um, Slack, I think, has always been a, a big distractor, at least for me, right? Because there's a million channels. Once we're 250 employees, there's always something going on. And then I was like, I'm just going to quit the app and close it. <laughs> and then I felt like I was kind of like cutting all ties to work. Like I'm officially on an island in my apartment by myself. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah, I, I think it's important to kind of turn it on and off. Right. Like if I'm going to check Slack, it's like checking email. I'm kind of doing it specifically with a purpose versus just like scrolling through Slack, which is which is deadly. You get into that. Right. Ran- you get into that hashtag random channel and you're just taken to a you know right field there. Exactly. Um, exactly. Me and the team have been doing. um kind of like quick stand-ups on Slack in the mornings. We have our own little channel of three content creators here. If you thought there was more of us, there's only three. And <laughs> um, and so we just do a quick like check-in for like, hey, what are we working on today? If there's any questions you already have, and then we're kind of just like check that channel at a higher priority. And then other stuff other than like direct messages, I'm kind of like pushing to the side. I think you're going to have like three stand-ups soon because you're going to have like content stand-up, demand-gen stand-up, marketing stand-up. I'm just going to be stood Go to up, <laughs> standing all morning. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're wondering why we're talking so much about remote work, is we talked to Michelle Benfer, uh, VP of sales over at HubSpot, and she had some tips on uh, doing just that, how to remain communicative uh, and kind of some tips there. So if you have not heard from Michelle before, you're in for a treat. She mm-hmm. is a badass. Definitely. Let's chit chat and let's dive into our interview with Michelle. Hey, Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to dive into some icebreakers, which is probably one of my favorite parts Mm -hmm. of the show. And we saw on HubSpot's website that you love to host barbecues. So I have to ask, what's your favorite thing to grill? Well, I guess I would say that I like to host barbecues. I don't necessarily (laughs) like to cook the food. (laughs) Thankfully, um, you know, we have a great griller uh, in our family. So uh, I'm not usually doing the grilling, but I do a really good playlist 
I make our backyard look amazing. So that's really the extent of my hosting of the barbecue. The atmosphere is, is just as important, some would say, especially the playlist. Oh, you need the ambiance, 100%. <laughs> Speaking of playlists, what's your go-to pump-up song? I don't know if this dates me, but it's um, Nicki Minaj, Moment for Life. Do you guys know that one? I do know that one. Nice. That song just, it pumps me up every time, and I sing to the top of my lungs in my car and get myself psyched, like Dwight Schrute style in the office. <laughs> yes, it's that a solid fun. one. Well, let's talk about your career path a little bit. You moved from fashion at Vogue uh, and Condé Nast to ad sales at AOL and others, and then technology sales at LogMeIn, uh, now HubSpot. So can you tell us a little bit about the decisions you made uh, that got you where you are today from fashion to leading a sales org at HubSpot? I should probably also mention that before I started at Vogue, I was selling cars here outside of Boston on Route 1, the Auto Mile. So going from cars to fashion to tech media, then into tech was definitely a interesting path. But um, yeah, you know, I think for me, um, I've always, I've always trusted my gut, but I tried to go where opportunity was. So for example, when I was first working in fashion and media, I mean, it was super vibrant. I worked with uh, very successful women. It was Vogue at the time was the number one women's fashion magazine in the world. Um, but as you know, more things moved online, there was less spending that was happening in the magazines. And a lot of those traditional media companies were, um, were contracting. And so I saw that since a lot of things were moving online and I made the move over to AOL to really start my digital media um, career. And it was there that I started to um, manage large sales teams. So I had a, a team there of around 45 reps and a management team of five managers under me. And I realized what I love most about my work at that point was um, overseeing large groups. And so <clears throat> when I saw the media world continue to contract and the opportunities for me in the New England area and the Boston area to continue to lead large teams, um, it really wasn't in the, in the media space anymore. And SaaS was so vibrant and growing here in the Boston market. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, get a job at Log Me In, and there I oversaw a team of around 60 reps and six sales managers, and um, that really kind of continued my path to overseeing large sales teams. So that's kind of how I meandered in a pretty interesting way throughout my uh, sales career. That's terrific. So it sounds like you um, also had an eye on the market. You were looking at what are the broader trends that are going on, and how can you best position yourself for that? 100%. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And, um, you know, even that, like, I think if you work in tech right now, or really in any industry, you have to be able to adapt. And the people who adapt are the ones who survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. And so I think my ability to pivot, be flexible, adapt, and see where the market was going and where opportunity was, um, has really paid off for me. So it seems like, you know, being a, a people leader, managing large teams is, um, something that you love, you have a passion about doing that, passion for doing that. And as a result, you really value having a strong team culture. What would you say is really the core of the sales culture at HubSpot? And how do you help influence that as a sales leader? Yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> HubSpot's famous for our, our company culture. And then, you know, obviously sales is a, a microcosm of that. But when I first arrived at HubSpot, which was just over two years ago, one of the, the pieces of the sales floor culture that I was um, 
I, I don't know if I'd say I was surprised by, but I was really impressed by was how helpful everybody is to each other. So if you're a new rep and you start at HubSpot, everyone around you wants to help you. And I know in some sales organizations, there can be lone wolves or people don't want to share best practices mm -hmm. because they feel as though that takes away from their own selling time. That's you, you never really find that at HubSpot, which um, it's a very giving, helpful culture, which, which I really like. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the flip side, like, you know, the company as a whole, and I would say our sales team as well, they think of culture as living, breathing and organic. It's not like a set it and forget it. Here are our values. Let's hope this all works out. So one of the things I try to do as a leader pretty consistently is get feedback from, from my team through surveys and say, you know, what could we do better? How can we enhance the culture? Does it feel like an inclusive environment? And you get pieces of feedback from your team for things like, you know, I'm a parent and it's hard for me to go to team bonding events after work. Mm -hmm. You know, can we find something that happens in the afternoon? Or, you know, I don't drink alcohol and I prefer to bond with people in a way that is not, um, you know, under the influence of, of you know, imbibing. So can we come up with events that, you know, don't have alcohol as a part of our, of our um, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so we just really try to have a pulse on what people want. Um, another big ask of the team recently, you know, my team this year will have somewhere around 120, 130 reps for a North America small business. And it's hard for these reps to get to know each other. So they might just know their immediate team, but they work on a floor with people and they don't know who they are. And so they've asked for a lot more into settings and cross team collaboration so that they can get to know other people. So, you know, I think it's, you got to listen to your people. You got to create a culture that they want, you know, understand what the gaps are and, and try to lead, um, you know, to, to address those, to, to create a real healthy, fun, vibrant, energetic, and inclusive culture. How do you decide like what, where does the onus lie uh, for, between HR or your people team and the sales leadership team to understand like what the people on the team need and want and you know some of those examples that you pointed out? Yeah, I mean, I think we do a pretty good job of, um, so we do have HR sends, you know, company-wide um, surveys and feedback. I think less so on, on the culture piece, it's just really the overall health of the organization. I think it, it's kind of like federal and state, right? And so, you know, we're the kind of the state government and we want to make sure that we're, we're doing right by our constituents. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I, I think of my, my sales org. Um, and I think like, you know, all those idiosyncratic, you know, fun, whether it's team jokes or um, references, things like that, that happens organically within your own subculture. And so, you got to make sure you can tap into that and allow that room to breathe and thrive and um, really kind of be its own culture um, outside of, um, but complementary to um, overall people operations or human resources. Yeah. And along the same line, you had a post uh, recently, Michelle on LinkedIn, uh, where you said you met with the leaders that report to you to discuss a variety of topics uh, specifically, you know, to support stress and anxiety relief for your reps I'm curious what prompted that and maybe what were some of the takeaways from that conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll tell you, I, so I grew up in a sales environment that was, I would say in some ways Machiavellian. I had, I had some leaders who led by fear and mm. having anxiety and work stress and the Sunday scaries were just, it was just a part of life mm -hmm. and it was kind of this sink or swim environment. And, um, I remember what that felt like and it wasn't healthy. And a lot of sales managers will come to me and say, 
you know, hey, this rep, they've really been struggling. They doubt themselves or they have imposter syndrome or they're really stuck in a rut, like they're doing all the right things. It's just everything's not clicking yet from a revenue perspective. Do you think you could have a chat with them? And more often than not, I mean, probably the highest number of one-on-one chats that I've had um, with reps, you know, in the last few years has been about their own personal anxiety and stress that they're trying to navigate. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in sales that, that pressure is just always there. You got to hit that monthly number, your stack ranked against your peers. For a lot of people, it was, it's the first time they've faced professional adversity. You know, my team, they have, and it's either their first sales job or they've been in sales for five or six years, but for a lot of time, a lot of people they're they're really struggling with how do they face some of these personal and work challenges. And, and, you know, it affects, it affects their daily work. It affects teams being able to hit their number. And so we try to create a, you know, a psychologically safe environment where people can talk about their mental health. They can talk about needing a break, um, you know, whether it's to go to appointments with, um, you know, a therapist or something like that. So we just, instead of brushing it under the carpet, we really tried to build a healthy work environment that supports the needs of our people. And those needs include mental, you know, mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to imagine your team really appreciates that people first mentality and you're probably seeing folks stay on your team longer. 100%. And, you know, I'll tell you, we've had a few reps who have had to take leave of absence and, you know, mistakenly, I, I had, I thought, okay, this is probably their, you know, their first foot out the door, but you know, they'll be looking for a job because this isn't the right fit for them. And we've had people return and it's just unbelievable. The turnaround, they just really needed that life pause, that professional pause, and they come back recharged and it's done wonders for people. So, um, definitely has helped with, uh, rep, um, retention, and just their overall health and well-being, um, which permeates not just their own work, but their team members and and the floor as a whole. So, it's definitely, in my view, it's it's the right way to to lead. So we're going to get into the meaty part of the conversation today, which is all around uh, territory planning and and strategizing around that. Um, it may not be the sexiest topic, but I think it's super critical for any organization, especially um, leadership, as uh, it can make or break uh, your numbers. So. You specifically run uh, small businesses across North America, and you can tell us a little bit about uh, the types of businesses uh, and companies that your team sells to. And you have, uh, of course, a lot of experience rolling out and managing territories. So just to kick it off, give a little bit of context um, around how you determine uh, today which reps get which territory. Yeah, excellent question. It's a hot topic, um, probably, I think, for any sales organization. And so this is, I'm entered, I just entered my third year at HubSpot, and this is the third iteration of territories that we've rolled out. And so far, the the one we rolled out this year seems to be going really well. Um, so, so as I mentioned, you know, I oversee North America small business sales that covers um, Canada as well as um, the United States. And, you know, we'll have um, somewhere around 120 reps this year, which that's a lot of micro territories to, mm-hmm. to carve for sure. When I first uh, arrived at HubSpot, everyone had their own mini territory. So you might have Boston, you might have Western Massachusetts, you might have Alabama, but, you know, there are these little micro territories. And to your point, what ended up happening was there was a lot of territory disparity. So some of our strongest reps might have San Francisco or New York and the conversations they had and the 
the level of um, sophistication that a lot of the buyers had was very different than uh, more rural communities and, you know, areas of the country that just aren't as much of a hotbed for whether it's tech or e-commerce companies, mm-hmm. uh, manufacturing, et cetera. So we realized that it really did a disservice to a lot of our reps. If you started in a territory that wasn't as high performing, um, you had to close a lot more deals. The deal size was much lower and you were just at a disadvantage where you were learning much more quickly um, and at a faster pace if you were in one of the like kind of top 10 uh, DMAs. So last year we moved from this kind of micro territory model where everyone was kind of a CEO of their own domain to a 100% lead rotator. Hmm. So we had an East coast team, a West coast team, and we had a Canada team and everyone received equal distribution of leads based on our model. That was actually a bit challenging because you really got the leads off of your, your book of prospect accounts that you owned, which every rep owned about 700 of those. And so we didn't end up seeing the, the lead um, equality that we had hoped. So you'd have one rep that would receive 30 leads in a month. Another rep would receive 60 leads. Right. Well, again, we're at that disadvantage. So mm-hmm. we moved into this year going back to territories, but we moved into team territories. And what we did was we broke out each territory under a manager and we had tier one, tier two, tier three territories in that. So for example, that might be New York City is a tier one, tier two might be Delaware and tier three might be Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So every team has a combination of a really hot territory, more medium and, and maybe one that doesn't yield as much revenue. And those leads get distributed equally among the reps and they can prospect into that full territory, which really uh, expands that total addressable market for all the reps on the team and the team as a whole. So, so far it's gone over really well with, um, with the reps and, some of the ways that we kind of analyze those include, you know, what's the, the value of a lead that comes from any of these territories? Um, how much revenue did it um, generate in the last year? And then also how much upside is there based on um, domains that we already own within our database that um, fall within what we consider good fit companies? And is there a lot of upside within that territory? So, so far, so good. The reps seem to love it. Um, it gives them exposure to all different types of conversations. Um, they learn a lot and, um, they feel as though they're on equal footing with all the other reps on their team. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I've, I've been a part of many territory rollouts, uh, (laughs) none of which I think were quite as in depth as yours. And I can say you're either pretty much leave the, you know, once your hand gets dealt, you're either pretty pissed off or you're very happy, uh, as a sales rep, which, which it tends to be. You said something interesting, Michelle. Um, I've also had a territory at one time where New York was a state and Alabama was a state of mine. So my two o'clock call and my four o'clock call could be very different types of personas, uh, different types of you know progression for technology. I'm curious if you guys do any training around this for your sales team or if it's even kind of like a footnote of like, hey, as you're talking to different territories, there's kind of a bit of a code switch or maybe a way that you present HubSpot. Mm, that's really interesting. Not, I mean, not that comes, I, I think that those conversations happen within teams for sure. sure. Um, like for example, you know, there might be a certain territory that's really hot. Like the cannabis industry has been really big for us. So, you know, there's a talk track with the persona mm-hmm. uh, for cannabis um, companies that are popping up everywhere, CBD, that, you know, they're going to definitely lean into what we know are some of the KPIs and some of the business challenges that a lot of these uh, companies are are 
handling. And then on the flip side, you might have manufacturing that might be more traditional businesses. They're moving for the first time to marketing automation, um, moving to a platform or a CRM like HubSpot. And that's a lot more of an evangelical sale. And so you need to kind of pivot to, um, are we optimizing a business? Are we, are we evangelizing why they should and challenging why they should can consider uh, a product like HubSpot. And so we do coach on how to pivot those conversations, whether it's by industry persona and, or, um, you know, other facets of, of how these business operate. Definitely. That, that definitely makes sense. And do you guys do like, I don't know, maybe you need kind of like either territory or uh, industry analysis, maybe like quarterly to kind of say, Hey, like, like we're, we're picking up that CBD is, is, is hot right now. We should probably lean into that talk track. Is that something that kind of just happens organically? Like reps raise their hand and say, Hey, we're running into this. Or is there maybe a different approach you guys have to kind of spotting those things? Yeah. I mean, so we have a super active Slack channel that it's not even just my team. We have probably 200 people throughout the business and reps who are on other teams like hop into it. So there's just a ton of crowdsourcing that happens. Um, and as I mentioned, it's like this kind of helpful culture. So we'll say like, I'm working with the CBD company and you know, they're struggling with X, Y, Z. Does anyone have a couple of, um, businesses or customer references you could recommend websites that have implemented HubSpot? And then you'll have upwards of a hundred people who will just toss a few examples over, you know, your way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we'll do it like that. We might tap into our marketing team and say, Hey, can we build out a case study for like this, um, you know, industry it, it's, it's really starting to pick up. Um, and, and so we might go down it that way. So yeah, we're, we're definitely leaning in, in areas, uh, you know, e-commerce businesses areas, um, that we can, we have a pulse is really starting to pop in the market. So you said that um, over the three years, you, you changed your territories uh, twice. So you had three different uh, plans overall. How did you know it was time to um, revamp your territory strategy? Like, was there certain data that you looked at? Was it more word of mouth? Were you just not hitting your numbers? Would love to hear more about that. Yeah, well, the first place you hear it is the floor. So, Always. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And, you know, and it's funny because especially when you're navigating change management, you roll out a new territory, you know, at first you, you, at least I did, I thought, you know what, they're just not used to it yet. We need to see it through. We got to give it a good 60 days, eight weeks to then really assess how, how well it's doing. And, you know, you take a look at your core KPIs and is anything changing? So for example, one of the things we found last year when we moved to a full rotator model was that. Um, based on like just any kind of lead flow that a company is going to get and HubSpot's really, you know, owns that SMB space, there are just more businesses that are going to be five employees or lower. And so based on the volume and, and the leads that the reps received, that was all that they could call on was um, basically what was handed to them. And one of the things we found was that we really started to grow our revenue from businesses that were in the one to five employee size band, but we really saw a decrease in the six to 25 mm-hmm. employee size band. And that, that cohort um, has a much, the six to 25 has a much higher deal size. Um, you know, they tend to be stickier. They're not going to churn as much because the, the business is a bit more established. And one of the things we, we realized with that territory model was we left a lot of opportunity on the table because reps were only closing leads that were sent to them instead of, prospecting into our database that we already had. Um, 
of some really good prospects that maybe had, you know, considered HubSpot, you know, six, nine months ago a year, and they just weren't ready. And the reps basically were hindered from going back out and prospecting into those. So long story short, you know, listen to the floor, we could, we could feel and hear that the reps um, weren't able to execute as effectively as they thought that they could. And that was the first indicator. And then it's really kind of calling that data and saying, is there something here that seems to be a little bit different? Why is their deal size going down, you know, why are we closing the same number of deals, but we're still not hitting our numbers. So you really kind of make that, make that analysis. And then, you know, as a executive team, you make the call and put together a proposal on like, all right, how do we pivot and make an adjustment here in order to service, not just the the team, but also the the business as a whole. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're able to comment on the, the strategy that's used by some of the other segments, mid-market and enterprise at HubSpot. Um, how it may vary from what you're doing on the SMB side. Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> we are definitely, I mean, HubSpot, we found an inbound marketing. And I would say about 80% of what my team closes, 70, maybe 70% of what my team closes is generated from inbound marketing leads that are, um, you know, they're fresh. I mean, we've, they, we've received them mostly within the, the last 90 days. And then, but the mid-market teams, um, they're also inbound, but just as you go higher up the, the, the um, chain, and this is every business I've worked in, you know, the lead flow um, gets smaller as you go higher up in employee size. So we do have those teams supported by um, BDRs and there still is an outbound nature um, based on good fit companies that have either raised their hand for HubSpot in the past, or we think might be a, a really good fit um, to engage with. But you know, still heavily inbound driven. It's just at a different ratio than you'll see for my small business sales team. Um, and so those are kind of our three segments. It's mid-market, our corporate segment, and small business uh, on the direct selling side. And then we also have a partner channel side. And these are sales reps who sell to marketing partners, whether it's agencies um, or it might be a solutions partner. They might be recommending CRMs, things like that. And mm-hmm. so those reps enable our partners to sell to their end um, end uh, clients. And on the on the mid market and enterprise side, do you have a similar like tiered T one to T three type of territory planning, or is it more named accounts no. or state based? So so they are still so our mid market team is still in that kind of uh, micro territory model. Um, so everyone is kind of CEO of their own domain. And then on the corporate team, I think it's a combination of named accounts as well as a territory as well. So they're they're still kind of in that more traditional territory model that my team had had a, a couple years back. Sure. It's, it seems like you're more experimental and uh, kind of put in a position to change more frequently on the SMB side, which is seems like it could be fun. I, I mean, I love it. I'm a nerd about these things. And um, and then also, you know, I have uh, 12 sales managers under me right now to be able to also test within your organization and um, experiment, you know, A-B test, you know, a pilot with a couple of teams and see how that goes mm-hmm. against, you know, in, in differentiates from the um, the baseline group is it's just a great way to get some feedback on which way you should, you should go as a direction um, before you go full force into committing to a new process or strategy. Very interesting. Uh, and we had talked a little bit before the show, Michelle, you said you have a pretty sizable part of your team that's remote, right? 
So there's a really site. Well, actually, today everyone's remote. Um, yeah. <laughs> COVID nineteen, but so we are, have a super flexible work from home culture. My team probably has the the lowest number of remote employees. In I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's almost all of HubSpot. And the reason why it's been like that is because so many of our sellers are are very new to their sales career, and we really like the learning uh, from osmosis and having your team around you. That said, we are in the process of building out our work from home playbook. So, um, and remote employee playbook. So we just brought on uh, three new remote employees in this upcoming month. And we're really looking to not only allow our current employees to work remote more often, but also how do we start building teams from scratch that are gonna be fully remote teams. And a big perk in that is, you know, you get um, diverse uh, employees from all over the country, whether it's, you know, a, a, a different, um, you know, a different part of, of the U.S. It isn't just Boston centric and you can tap into um, levels of diversity that we just may not have in just one singular market. As sales leaders and sales reps are, are getting a little bit more attuned to working from home or working remote, do you have any tips uh, for ICs and leaders as they kind of get this new muscle flexed? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing is really the communication. Um, and so in setting expectations, so, you know, we're building this playbook out right now, but we have our sales managers, you know, making sure that the expectation is, um, you know, that, that constant communication needs to be agreed upon, not only from the manager, but the rep as well. So one of the recommendations we have is, you know, a manager might have a one hour one-on-one, but also two 15 minute check-ins a week with one of their remote employees Mm -hmm. that might be a little bit different from the employees they have that are sitting in seat. And then also giving the remote employee two buddies so that if their one buddy is on a call or their manager's not available, they have at least another person who is dedicated to them so that if they have an immediate question, the odds of them getting a response back pretty quickly are high. Um, We also just do like remote happy hours on some of the teams. You know, how do we create a culture that is inclusive and fun and also you can kind of relax a little bit and get to know some of your team members doing some good icebreakers. Um, and, um, and then also, you know, as I mentioned before, like surveying people, you know, what's working, what's not working, how can we make this better? Um, and so uh, that's iterative, you know, I think there's always work to do in supporting a more remote work culture, but even when you walk into HubSpot and you take a look at all of our international offices from Singapore, Tokyo, Sydney, Australia, Paris, uh, Dublin, one of the, um, offices that they include there is remote. And so we really try to make sure that the remote employees know that, um, you know, we, we consider them their own entity in the same way we would any of our major uh, international and or domestic markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about your playbook once it's uh, drafted up and completed. I know HubSpot puts together really amazing content. So that might be an area that you could publish that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're always trying to pump out more content. So that is a good idea. I will add that to my list. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious to hear what unanswered questions you're looking to answer at HubSpot. What's top of mind for you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a data geek. And so I'm always trying to tap into other sales leaders globally on how they're analyzing um, deal progression. And, and um, you know, what are some of those, not like a magic bullet, but what are some things that we can do to optimize our, uh, our deal velocity, 
our sales cycle, um, our deal sizes. And, you know, Devin at the Gong conference recently, you had, you had talked about, um, you know, the number of emails that, um, that reps send and the likelihood for a deal to close. And so it's all these little nuggets of, of information and data of what's working and deal patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the more that we can take a look at, um, the volume of opportunity and um, especially in a high velocity sales motion and what more data can we extract to inform um, and whether it is just manually or also through um, AI or machine learning, that's what I'm excited to like that next generation of how sales organizations are operating more of that, like deal intelligence um, and analysis that hopefully you're going to just help accelerate uh, deal processes without taking um, away that personalization and that great, um, you know, prospect and, um, client relationship. Yeah. I think that's always the balance, right? As we look for, for new tech and to make things easier, it's not letting a, you know, as you grab a, a new tool, it's not letting go of that, like you said earlier, like the humanistic approach, really building relationships. Uh, it, it should only be supplementing the sales motion, not, not really replacing any of those aspects. 100%. Yeah. I don't think yep. people are ready to buy enterprise software from a robot just yet. So we have no. some time. <laughs> that's where, I mean, honestly, that's where like Gong is awesome is being able to like really get a like qualitatively coach with data appended to it. Um, you know, which is, which is a great enhancement to like the way that we can coach our sales team. So it, it's that piece has been awesome. Michelle, can you tell us about a time that you had to make an important decision and how data fueled it? Uh, I mean, like every day, um, <laughs> your favorite story. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the ones, uh, this was the back half of last year and, and kind of going back to when we saw that we were really growing the business reps were spending most of their time with companies that had five or fewer employees, but the value of those deals was, um, significantly less than deals we closed with six to 25 employee size. Um, those deals were actually seven X value of what we found in deals from one to five employees. And so once we saw that, that totally informed our strategy for the upcoming year. And we right away started, um, feeding reps, all of these prospect accounts that we had. Um, and, and, we really shifted the um, ratio of businesses that you know had six plus employees in them, and just really stuffed their um, their prospect like capacity lists. And we immediately started to see our overall deal size increase, and the time they were investing in activities just had a much higher payoff. Um, and so that really informed almost all of our strategy moving into 2020. And, um, and then I, I think the final one is one of the examples I gave earlier as well is just how do we do like the, that multi-territory, uh, tiering when we take a look at the values and what the total addressable market would be for any given team. And that informed our territory strategy for this year. So those are two that were, you know, pretty impactful. We built our entire business on that for mm-hmm. 2020 North America, yeah. small yeah, and based on, you know, a couple nuggets of some pretty interesting data piece, data polls. Very cool. I'm getting the the, the vibe that uh, data plays a very important role, but also kind of what you said to start is, you know, still kind of trust your gut, right? So you're using both of those as kind of your North Star to get to the, the right end result. 100%. And then, you know, have fun, build great teams, you know, do right by your customers, be human. And so when you kind of pull all of those together, I think it makes for uh, a really great recipe for, you know, just servicing your customers as effectively as possible. Absolutely. What's the most important skill that sales leaders should focus on in 2020? 
Oh, good one. Uh, sales, most important skill that sales leaders should focus on. Um, I'll tell you, my, my sales leaders, my uh, management team, there are two things we're working on. We just did a workshop on this yesterday. One is how can you be an effective coach? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that, we actually have a coaching framework that we use to help our reps, you know, improve their skills. But you need to know whether or not if you put together a coaching plan, is it effective and how are you measuring it? And so I think, uh, so there's, that's the first piece. And then the second piece is accountability. And so my leadership team, when we chose what our core values were going to be as a group, one of the ones they wanted to hold themselves to was um, a higher level of accountability. And that was for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to coach your people um, and your organization to be more effective, how are you going to hold yourself accountable to make sure you see it through? And what are the metrics you're going to measure, the success criteria, to see that you moved something from point A to point B? So I think it's really kind of that self-reflective accountability. We all have a number to hit and sometimes you can hit that number, but that doesn't mean that you're doing your job as effectively as possible. And so we're really trying to double down on coaching really effectively. And then also a level of accountability that, that we have stronger throughput in um, some of the plans that we put together for people in our organization. That's great advice. If, if, you, if people listening only heard that last 90 seconds, I think it'd be a win for the day. For sure. Right. Now, lastly, how would you describe sales in one word? Fun. Ooh. What makes it fun for you? I mean, I just, I feel so blessed that I get to have a job that I work in every day that it's just vibrant. It's, you know, it's different. It's the art of the conversation. It's science. It's great people. It's a lot of laughs. It's uh, competitive. It compensate you well. I mean, there are so many great Mm -hmm. aspects to it. Um, and also like the adrenaline rush and sometimes the stress, like that's fun too. So, um, yeah, I think for all of those reasons, it's just, it's really fun work. And I just, I'm so happy I got into the field. And I think it also gives some perspective, right? There may be tough times or maybe stressful times, but enjoy the ride while you're going through it. We're lucky to be in the position that we're in. Oh, love it. It's just, it's the best. I really lucked out choosing this field. Awesome. Michelle, we have had a wonderful time having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you, guys. It was, it was great. And um, appreciate you having me. For this week's micro action, I want to double down on some of the tips that Michelle shared for managing her remote sales team and hopes it helps you and your team adapt to working remote. First, I really like the idea of buddying up. It's easy to start working in a vacuum and getting minimal FaceTime or now screen time with our coworkers. She mentioned how it ensures continued learning so her reps can share what's working and equally important, what's not. With the rapid selling environment, both are key. Consider having your reps buddy up in your next team meeting to keep the interaction high and the tribal knowledge flowing. Second, try a remote happy hour. It's key to communicate around business objectives and keeping the business moving forward, but it's also important to keep your culture alive. And after a few weeks of working from home, I think we can all use some fun human interaction. And I admit, I thought this would be a little awkward at first when our team started doing these, but they're actually really fun. Everyone brings a drink, alcoholic or not, and a topic of conversation. Jump on a Zoom session and relax a bit. Last, collect weekly feedback from your team. Times are changing fast and we should keep adapting in response. Ask them for their candid input. How are they coping with remote work? Where could they use assistance? Have they learned anything that's worth sharing with the broader team? 
You can use a survey, have an open forum in a team meeting, or message your team individually. We're in uncertain times, and your team will appreciate being heard. If you decide to run with any of these ideas, we'd love to hear how they've worked out for you. Give us a shout at reveal at gong.io. From the whole Gong team, have a safe and productive week. We're rooting for you. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io. 